Welcome to Attachment Theory in Action. Our podcast is dedicated to therapists, social workers, counselors, and psychologists who are working with clients from an attachment-based perspective. Interviews are conducted with individuals who are doing clinical work, as well as leading attachment theory researchers. Your host, Karen Doyle Buckwalter, will introduce you to Melanie Chung Sherman, who will discuss transracial adoption and attachment. Melanie has worked in the field of child welfare, specifically adoption and foster care, that spans international adoption, private and domestic adoption, kinship adoption, foster care, and matched adoption for over 19 years. Her specialties include adoption-centered psychotherapy for individuals, families, and groups, TheraPlay, EMDR, trauma-focused intervention, the adult attachment interview, adoption lifespan issues, and complex grief and loss, among other specialties. And now your host, Karen Doyle Buckwalter. So my interview today for the Attachment Theory in Action podcast is with Melanie Chung Sherman. Um, Melanie has been on the podcast before talking about attachment and adoption. And I asked her uh, recently to come on the podcast again today to talk about transracial adoption, um, race in terms of identity and forming attachment, um, and some of that topic as I have been learning a lot from her about this. I first met Melanie, um, well actually first I met her, met her just online before I met her in person, but I originally had contact with her because she wrote a chapter for my book, Attachment Theory in Action. I was looking for some adult individuals who were adopted that could give a voice to what it's like to be adopted. And uh, through another colleague, uh, Melanie was recommended to me and she did end up doing a beautiful chapter for the Attachment Theory and Action book. What I didn't realize then, that I realize now that that was just really the start of my journey and what I would learn from Melanie. And so I am so grateful for all that I've been learning from her and I look forward to speaking with her about this topic today in our podcast. So here we go. So Melanie, hi. I'm so happy to have you here on this podcast again. Thank you so much. I'm I'm really, I'm honored. It's always a privilege uh, to talk about these really challenging topics. Yes, yes. And you know, what, what I feel so wonderful about you is what we're going to talk about today, you know, um, transracial adoption and issues of race related to adoption. But you're also a therapist and um, a student of attachment theory. So you can kind of put all that into this context, which is, I don't know if there's anyone else that can do that, really. So maybe there's some out there, but I appreciate that unique contribution that you have with that. Yeah, there's a small subset of um, transracial adoptees who are also clinicians. Um, we're, we always consider ourselves rainbow unicorns. <laughs> yes, yes. 
very specialized, but I think we're still, we as um, adoptees are also, particularly adoption clinicians, have found ourselves in a unique space to um, recapitulate what the words mean and, and then yeah. really how this applies in terms of attachment theory and neurodevelopmental mm -hmm. trauma research, our own lived experience and what we see day to day in our, in our work. Mm -hmm. uh, so we, we definitely need our community. Um, it definitely can't be siloed. We were kind mm -hmm. of talking about the silos that happen mm -hmm. our mm -hmm. human behavior. Yes. 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 You know, uh, I thought it might be interesting to start out our discussion with the term woke and <laughs> maybe giving listeners a, a current definition to that within the context of our topic today. And then we can kind of go further down the path, um, kind of how that happens. But maybe if you could just share a little bit about that word and your first exposure to it and, and your understanding of it. No, I'm definitely on, um, I'm a student of uh, really my own sense of racial identity and integration and um, what it means to be a woman of color, a therapist of color, an adoptee of color. Um, and so woke really, it can be, a, I, I find it can be a trigger word for those. Um, I, I share woke is on a spectrum. I think just like our life experiences of um, really beginning to not only recognize with some self-awareness about how race um, is integrated into our sense of self, um, but then the ability to put words and put meaning behind what that feels like in those experiences. And also the awareness of when it's happening and not just within my own, like my implicit bias of the things that I'm thinking or feeling privately and going, mm -hmm. whoa, wait, whoa, that is something oh, wow, um, that was really biased uh, against an entire group of, of people, including what it means to be Asian. Oh, all the Asians are bad drivers. And that is embedded still in my own psyche. I have to catch myself. But the wokeness part of that, the spectrum is going, it's happening. And now I can do something with that. Um, and all the way into activism, all the way into social justice, um, dialogue and communication and discussion that can actually feel quite threatening for those on um, the beginning stages of the woke spectrum. And so really mm -hmm. this is, it's become a terminology, particularly within the African-American community and people of color community to go, I need you to wake up and see um, that my race, my, the essence of who I am, the color of my skin, my ethnicity is so integral into my identity. And I need you to wake up and I need you to see that, but also calling for, for other people of color that um, we also then have to wake up. So the word intersectionality, where we're looking at marginalized communities, um, particularly within people of color communities, LGBTQ, um, dis disabilities and special needs. Um, we mean gender, fluidity, all of these things is, you know, a kind of a culmination of me, myself personally waking up and going, where is my privilege? Give me an edge in terms of access to equity and services. And where is that held back in terms of a broader system? 
that mm. may oppress, that may um, withhold um, equity and um, the ability for more marginalized communities to access mm. the same power and privilege. Mm-hmm. And I need to be awake to that, to do something about it. Mm-hmm. And so, so, so it's a process. Yes. And um, it's a process of education and of increasing sensitivity. And like you said earlier, kind of catching yourself, wait a minute, you know? Um, I I think, um, you know, it's interesting too, to hear you talk about, um, because you are Korean and was, were adopted by a white family that you kind of had to go through that process yourself because I think the, the message a lot of adoptive parents that I've worked with and and I think I've been guilty of this too is is not really I mean maybe understanding culture is important so we want to you know take take kids to to uh, cultural things maybe help them rem- remember their language but mm-hmm. that's different than identity and right. race and so I think that's that's where some of that seems to be breaking down where um, as therapists and adoptive parents, we can say, oh yeah, 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 we get that and just sort of move on. Um, but tell me, tell the listeners some of your experience, how you kind of uh, had the experience of having to assimilate into that culture and mm-hmm. what the difference now is for you that, that you've thought about this more. Right. Well, I grew, um, I grew up, I wouldn't say consistently, but my um, adopt family would, we would go um, intermittently to Korean culture camps. I will say through the camps, um, it is a gateway um, because what I found is a lot of leadership within the transracial adoption community, particularly Korean adoptees, a lot of leadership has come from those who attended camp. So that was, it really was a grassroots movement that was started by adopt parents, particularly white adopt parents saying we needed more. And so I think that is, um, it's still an essential part of the whole picture, mm-hmm. particularly for transracial uh, adoptees, but it can't stop there. So the teaching of culture, and what we have to be really mindful of um, over the years is the feedback from um not just transracial adoptees, but people of color, people within the community who really want to integrate what it means to be Asian in America, Black in America, uh, Latinx in America, biracial, the multiracial versus what it means to be Ethiopian, Chinese, Korean, Haitian, um, which is what you can find in terms of culture camp, but actually moving that into integration of identity is so much more complex and nuanced. And we are still finding um, words to go along with that and also modalities, at least clinically, though there's been amazing, particularly transracial adoptees like Dr. Amanda Baden and J. Ron Kim, we're doing incredible work that are really looking at, um, and I'm, there's many more um, that are looking at what does that experience feel like for the adoptees. And you know, I grew up pretty much in 
um, an all-white community. So just to give some perspective, my brother and I were one of the only Asians in a 5A high school outside of Fort Worth, Texas, and the flag was a Confederate flag. So I know all the stanzas to the spirit of Dixie. Um, Johnny Rev would uh, dance around with a huge Confederate flag around a bonfire for um, Friday night football games. So this is an indoctrination of part of my experience, but also my development as a young person um, and where I really siloed off parts of what it meant to be a person of color. In fact, I didn't quite, I didn't embrace that until a few years ago, like actually calling myself a woman of color and really beginning to own what that feels like intrinsically for myself because there weren't words to go along with um, racial um, ostracism and exclusion. And the things that I experienced that were invisibilized to most of my white counterparts, including my white adult family, who would constantly come back and say, well, pray for your enemies, um, give everybody the benefit of the doubt. And um, they probably, that can't be possible. You're beautiful, they're jealous because, you know, they want your skin or they want your eyes. But as a child, it really then puts the onus back on that, uh, kiddo or that teen to figure it out when nobody else can see it. And so in terms of transracial adoption, what is even more confounding when we look at that with attachment is where do I go when I, I need to seek safety and protection and, and feel regulated and known by somebody else if I'm coming with a racialized experience that really doesn't have words? Mm -hmm. How can I explain that when I walk into that store, people look at me funny? when that may not be the experience of my parents or my brother who was white or um, we're in church. So this is everybody, they love Jesus. That can't be it. And yet I'm, I wasn't invited to birthday parties. And when I was, there was a lot of exclusion that happened um, or comments about based solely on race that I should be really smart. People wanting to take my homework and use it and cheat off of it or and particularly as an adoptee who for myself but I see this with clients who truly they know intrinsically what it feels like to be abandoned and rejected will move into a peer system group and that can really place them at high risk in terms of um, exploitation and vulnerability to those who would take advantage of kiddos um, and so a lot of our young people on top of um, what's happening early on, like early neurodevelopmental trauma, it's also triggering the immediate response, that trauma response to go, I know something's not right, but I don't know what it is. And everybody else tells me that it's fine. Mm -hmm. um, so it wasn't until I was much older, and I would say like my late 20s, when um, my firstborn, my oldest was born, and I would, the only other human being that shared some of my, my likeness and my skin color and my eyes. And so there's that curiosity of, oh my gosh, oh my gosh, I'm not white. And I knew it up here. But how do I teach my child about race when I don't have the experience or the words yet? 
to capitulate what it means. So that actually then started a, a whole other process of trying to seek out um, not just support, but seek out meaning in that. And thankfully, there is a group of um, transracial Asian adoptees. We're, we're pretty much, we call ourselves really the pioneers. We've been following each other for almost 20 years now. Um, and we would have these private discussions about what this experience was like and, you know, what are our own countertransferences, our projections that are happening clinically. And then what is that also telling us about our own sense of identity, not just as adoptees, but women of color, therapists of color. You know, how is this translating to the work that we love doing, mm -hmm. to the parent that I was becoming? Um, but then also then grappling with past history of what it meant to be in an all-white community. Mm -hmm. A lot of POCs will call it, or POCs or people of color will call it um, all-whiteness. Um, you know, because we are taught it was implicit and sometimes overt through my own relatives. You don't talk about race because good girls don't talk about it. You don't bring it up even though that really was front and center in terms of relational um, community and trust and acceptance. But yet at the same time, I was also told, don't talk about it. But my brain was like, I know, I think I'm being paranoid when I think when I walk into a room and I'm extra anxious and I'm hypervigilant that, you know, there must be something wrong with me. Mm -hmm. Why am I this way mm -hmm. um, when you know I'm told that it should be okay so I think about that with um, transracial adoptees particularly in all white families so it's not a matter of they're not enough but we have to be able to move forward in terms of how do we help particularly white parents who may have adopted transracially who have done the work of learning about a child's culture but that is not the same as what it means to be um, a person of color in America or a person of color in that community and also in their own family. Mm -hmm. but if we to feel I'm alien in my own family, I've heard that um, from several young people of color. Yes. Um, you know, I'm just thinking so much about what you're saying with, uh, this idea of if it's sort of like a lot of issues in adoption like if they don't bring if a child doesn't bring it up then we're not going to bring it up <laughs> you know that that often seems to be the attitude when I think really what we're learning is better the parent initiate the discussion and the child you know maybe not be there then just assume that because the child's not bringing up, this isn't an issue. Um, and I, I've seen this like a good example, you know, recently where there were two children adopted from China and um, the, the daughter, a, a girl and a boy, the daughter, she wanted to go to all the cultural stuff. She wanted to do all of these things. The son, no, I don't wanna do that. I don't have any interest in that. Very rejecting of that. And so I think parents take that as a cue um, often, oh, like we don't, 
now we should do even more of the colorblind stuff with him, <laughs> you know, because this is how he feels. Um, what, are your, what do you say to that? Well, and I, I think colorblindness, so just uh, addressing that, I hear that yeah. quite, quite frequently. And I, I, I do want to take the sting off that. I mean, I think a lot of parents may feel really, um, really triggered when a person of color says, stop using that. Um, mm -hmm. And the, the mechanism behind colorblindness is for your child, for a person of color, I can't be blind to how my race is in, uh, impacting the relationship in this moment. Um, it's always front and center. And so that really is a privilege for, um, it's really a privilege for white counterparts, peers and family and friends to be colorblind. And so if we're really thinking in terms of that deep work of it being known and that right brain of attachment, it is that empathic connection to go, I may not know what that experience is like, but I acknowledge it. And so it's the acknowledgement that race is still um, very much an integral part of a person's identity. And so our young people really need to learn how to navigate that part of identity and then integrate that with the big picture of attachment and trauma work. And it's not uncommon that I hear from families, well, they want nothing to do with Chinese culture. And that's okay, that's okay. My, my curiosity in that is, I'm wondering what's happening, whether that is through messages, implicit or overt messages within community, even within um, their own family system of about what it means to be a certain race. Mm -hmm. And if I then move and I navigate into a space that is only Chinese for many or only um, Ghanan or what in many ways, what my white adopted parents think a person of color should be, you're not hearing my experience because I don't yet have words and racism and many of the other um, traumas in life, it, it lives in the right brain. There's no mm -hmm. words yet. We have to help mm -hmm. our children um, not only acknowledge it, but then um, give it meaning and give that word. And so if I find that there is um, even a cutoff, it is also, I'm curious what, what they're experiencing as a child of color. And I'm also curious about what they've internalized about what it, what it means to look like them, mm -hmm. more so than what it means to be Chinese or mm -hmm. Korean. Um, because all of that is cognitive. Yeah. Um, and that's great, I can go, I love Korean food. I, I, I see, it's my comfort food. I didn't grow up with Korean food, but when I'm really upset, um, especially lately, <laughs> I want a big bowl of kimchi <laughs> and I want seaweed and rice. It is, there's something to that and having just that normalcy, whether that is through other um, Korean peers and um, other people of color, particularly transracial adoptees for adults who say, yeah, I didn't grow up with soul food or I didn't grow up with pho, but I really, I just desire it. And I think there, there is something very visceral about that. So the culture is still important, but underneath that, I think is the meaning of how our young people are driving their sense of self.
-hmm. and therapeutically mm -hmm. that's where um i like to start with with kids and with teens young adults because why typically it's it is um completely separate of the conscience um, because in order to survive in my settings um, i have to assimilate right um, and if I am being called, particularly for Asian men, the um, really in, in feminizing mm -hmm. Asian men, demasculizing them, because mm -hmm. there's a long historical context. I tell, I really encourage therapists who are working with people of color, particularly transracial adoptees, families of color, for, and also for parents. It's learning the historical backdrops of um, racism and the history of people of color, and not just you know start where your child is, but also in context to what's going on right now, currently. Mm -hmm. Yes. Uh, mm -hmm. and, and that's a place to start, to help our kids understand when they're constantly called on because they're supposed to be bell curve breakers and they're really smart, um, or expected to be smart, so they're passed up for particular, um, uh, learning challenges and evaluations. A lot of Asian kids, they're not referred by therapists. Or um, we see uh, there is actually a report. I'll have to find it. I want to say this is the New York Times of the assumption that, um, and it is implicit bias um, therapeutically, but it can also happen educationally that um, they don't have learning challenges. So passive for dyslexia, dyscalculia. Um, whether that's um, other fundamental evaluations. And then mm -hmm. we have on the neurodevelopmental trauma. Mm -hmm. um, and it really places this child in this predicament of going, I really, I'm supposed to know this. Everybody else is telling me I'm really smart, and yet I am challenged here. Mm -hmm. Or for African-American children who are disproportionately, and Latinx multiracial kids presenting darker skin, um, disproportionate calls to the office um, and um, ISS and other actually learning challenges there are also pigeonholed and that may not be the case mm -hmm. but there's historical context behind that so I think it's really important for therapists and for families parents to begin to educate themselves mm -hmm. um, how do I find those resources Mm -hmm. Whether those are podcasts and reading, um, mm -hmm. there's some great social media groups to really get up to um, snuff about these so they can advocate for their kids. And their kids also know that there's context behind it. It's not just them. Right. You know, in terms of my um, journey with some of this, um, I think one of the things that really kind of um, made me get it at the next level because I realized this is a process, but talking about that this is really a core part of the child's identity. Like something about that, like a light bulb went off. Um, and that um, it may need to be dealt with before we get into thinking about attachment issues and trauma issues and all of that. Um, because it's just so core and something about that with me a light bulb went off I don't know what I thought it was before but um, something with that made it different for me what do you mm. thoughts 
or or comments about that. Um, I don't. I have, I don't feel like I thought it was an add-on, but yet I didn't wasn't giving it enough importance. Well, I'm I'm curious, Karen, and and I know <laughs> turning the interview. <laughs> so, what what do you think was that core component for you? Because I hear that quite quite a bit from um, from other from other friends and other professionals, and I I think it's a beautiful place to start. Mm -hmm. uh, and then I can I can dovetail. <laughs> okay. I, I think um, it was privileging the voice of adoptees, no matter how I felt or what I thought. Mm. So like if, if they were saying something like, isn't that an exaggeration or, you know, really did Someone didn't look at you like that when you went in the store. I mean, this is probably related to some other anxiety issue you have. So, I mean, I, I just decided that I have to just take what is being told to me as it's being told to me and like ignore all of the other bias I have in me. And then that's when it started. Uh, uh, and that's powerful. You're, that, that's the wokeness. Mm -hmm. I always consider. And once we begin to see, we can't unsee the same way mm -hmm. we look at attachment and trauma in our own lives and how that interplay, um, like it, it, how it carries itself out with our clients, mm -hmm. our colleagues in the world mm -hmm. around us. Yes. Um, you know, for uh, kiddos, I always consider when, particularly when parents are telling me about their hypervigilance and anxiety, one of my first questions is, tell me about the mirrors. Tell me about the racial mirrors. And so through, actually through the constructs of um, AAI, the adult attachment interview, I'm fascinated by how in terms of race, in terms of integration, not only how that child or teen is being able to verbalize that, but the parents too. And that helps me at least in terms of foundationally, you know, okay, this is, this is where we're at. Now I'm gonna honor that space because this is where we need to start. Um, because many times if for parents who have not, um, who have really not begun to uh, make sense of what that looks like or possibly feels like with their child, not for them, but with them, that's a place to start. Um, and it's one thing to give parents lots of reading. Like we love to strategize. I do it <laughs> as a therapist. Um, but I think more than that is actually holding that space for, um, uh, for parents and for our kids of color, for the experience. And, and so much is this, the fear. In terms of discussing race, it is this deep part of shame. And I love when Brene Brown would talk about, particularly after Charlottesville, she had a beautiful post from Braving the Wilderness, and she talked about shame in terms of um, addressing race and racism. Mm -hmm. Really, power differentials conferred against a group of people. Yes. A marginalized group of people. And when I have to look in the mirror and I have to consider how I may benefit from those power structures and how that may un- duly limit my own child when I'm trying to seek help for my child. It is painful. 
And how can you not feel this deep sense of shame? I'm not enough. Yes. And I think addressing the not enough with parents is always where, as therapists, where we start. But when we look into context of race, you know, the defensive mechanism to go, oh, it can't be that because it feels really overwhelming and dangerous because we're not taught how to discuss racism. I mean, we can talk about sexism, we can talk about misogyny in very um, specific terms. It's come a long way, we got a long way to go. Mm -hmm. But, you know, for so long, the idea of racism, KKK, people with um, burning crosses, that nice people didn't confer that. But when we really strip it away, it's, it's power structure mm -hmm. and how people may benefit from that. And it really is then, how does that leave your child when they're sitting out in this ocean, kind of bobbing? And when they go to a family reunion and they're the only ones of color, your babies see it. And how can they not be nervous? But they don't know where it's coming from. Mm -hmm. um, but that also means then addressing the people that have created a sense of safety for you as a parent mm -hmm. is to address racism. And that may mean that I'm going to learn things I didn't want to learn about the very ones who say they love my child. And they truly do believe they love my child. But yet at the same time may say or do things that I'm going to have to address and be very uncomfortable in. And it is, it's, it's tenuous because when we're working with transracial families, if we don't, as, as clinicians, address the complexities regarding trust, regarding um, a felt security, mm -hmm. that when my child is spinning, the first thing I need to consider is, I think they're, they're really activated right now. If somebody with well intentions, but the impact is great, comes up and tries to touch my child's hair, that intrusion on body space. Now, if this child's had a history of physical neglect or sexual abuse, or has been um, in multiple placements where body intrusion is um, very triggering for this little one, on top of that, their race is front and center. Are they coming up and asking them about their braids? Are they coming up and saying very, um, are they coming up and saying things about, um, immigrants and my child's an international adoptee or my child is a person of color mm -hmm. and, but they say but they don't see my child that way but the way it's downloaded for that child can feel very othering mm -hmm. they don't have the words and if my mom and dad or my my moms or my dads my caregivers are bringing me into these situations and they don't see how triggered i am a it must be in my head i must be a bad kid or children are already working dealing with their own shame core from that early um, abandonment, relinquishment, then um, how am I going to trust? How am I going to trust them when I'm really feeling something big? Mm -hmm. And it has everything to do with the way that I look. And yet, at the same time, um, it, there must be then the other factor is there must be something wrong with the way that I appear. So for, in, for transracial adoptees without racial mirrors or even connection or healthy connections to birth family, 
um, this, this can really begin to set a counter narrative that they're trying to internalize and fix in their own mind because if they're not even acknowledged, you imagine the anxiety, the depression, and the stress. And so even as clinicians, one of the first things, particularly for a child of self-harming, with suicidal ideation, whether it's overt or passive, suicide attempt um, should be race, mm -hmm. sexuality, gender, identity, mm -hmm. um, and how this is impacting them. There's a number of young people, particularly in more white environments, even though parents may think that we've got a great school district, which, you know, for a lot of people of color, that's code for we don't want our kids with those kids. So what are you internalizing as a message to your own child? Because, well, I'm not those kids. So it's dangerous to be, quote, unquote, those kids. But I don't mm -hmm. know what, the, what I look like them. And mm -hmm. I'm not like all my white friends. And they don't experience it the same thing. And they may consider, for many white, well-intentioned adopt parents, our area is diverse. And you can be in a really progressive area and yet be incredibly segregated um, where the child may be, there's other, say, African-Americans or Latinx, but they are the only Asians or biracial kids on top of having two white parents or one white parent or a multiracial family where you look like the UN, so they already stick out. <laughs> and that's when we get the questions of adoption. So race being forefront. Mm -hmm and overt and something so public about something that is so private and many times without words. Right, right, yes. Oh, I know we're nearing the end of our time, but this is just so much for us to be considering and thinking about. Um, when you were talking about a little bit about the receptiveness of white adoptive parents I think you have to have a certain number of defenses put up to adopt. Like you have to tell you, you know, not everyone steps forward and says, I'll take a three-year-old from an orphanage internationally, you know, a child, you know, and so there's something in those people that their defenses help them step forward to do that. And Defense and service of ego. <laughs> Yes, yes. And so when we start wanting to look at that, then since a parent may have convinced themselves in order to be able to do do this, that's not going to be a problem. Like that that'll be okay. That'll be fine. I mean, we're not racist and our family's not racist and or or whatever they tell themselves. Um, and I think it's kind of, um, I know we don't have time to dissect that, but I think that's part of needing to get through that to even get to the next step of, of being able to hear more about this. Yeah, and I think reaching where, where the, I, you're absolutely right, Karen, reaching where the defense is, because adopting transracially does not exclude the work to integrate race. Right. And the meaning of identity. And there, and I think one of the, it really then hits on the motivation of moving into adoption and the enoughness as parents and for that child. Um, I, I mean, really it, being able to know, I, I can only 
in terms of racial identity work, it's also, I think, the fluid knowledge that we need other supports and that I, as particularly as a white adopt parent, I won't be able to fill in all those needs. And I think that that mourning and that acknowledgement of what I thought I was supposed to be, mm-hmm. be a good parent. Now, as we go back to Winnicott, what is good enough? And good enough in terms of our own earned security or security is asking for help and receiving that help um, outside of ourselves. And for transracial adopt families, that is a, and that's a lot of places where I start, that mechanism to be able to access communities of color and then also have that spectrum moving into wokeness, the awareness of when I speak and when I listen. And this is very hard, I think, particularly for uh, more white counterparts to, in many ways, historically, it has always been the narrative of we are right. And it is not about us versus them, per se, but it's really giving privileged voice for people of color, adoptees of color or adoptees, um, those who typically don't have the power or privilege mm-hmm. when they're saying something, yeah. rather than labeling it one thing or the other. Um, yeah. So, no. yeah, there's, so, so there's just so much to learn in, in this process. And I want to, before we end, give listeners some ideas. I and mean, we're, we're just like, this is just the tip of the iceberg, right? Um, and what what are some places? Um, I know you have a wonderful post for the Donaldson Institute that you wrote that I think is fantastic that people could Google and if they, sure. they Google you, Melanie Chung Sherman, it, it will come up readily. What what are where where are you sending people to really get a better understanding? Uh, parents, therapists, whoever. Um, I love uh, the resources. Uh, so DAI, Donaldson Adoption Institute, um, they may not be uh, active right now, but they're a great resource um, mm-hmm. for, for transracial um, families. Um, I've written several um, articles for Adoption Today, and so they may be out of syndication now, but you can still access some of the work. Um, several of my colleagues are doing amazing work. So visiting um, Dr. Elizabeth uh, Liker is one, and she's also, um, she has a great resource regarding transracial adoption um, websites and pods and really looking at um, adoptee um, voice. Um, there's other great resources from um, my uh, colleague, Amanda Wilson, um, does some amazing work regarding just adoption and voices and really tackling um, some complex issues, including transracial adoption. Okay. Definitely can send, I've sent some books. Um, yeah, Transracial Adoption Perspectives is a large Facebook group. I always share with therapists um, and professionals who are interested, all are welcome, um, but it will push back. It is um, people of color and adoptees of color um, our privileged voices there and I think it challenges a space but for those who can stay and that discomfort the initial kind of shock of it all um, is I've seen it change lives for families and for professionals you really begin to see things in a different way and I'll share this that it is 
through a lot of different um, groups and also community, like one-on-one, -on -one, like what we're doing, discussions mm -hmm. with loved ones and friends who've gone a little bit further, um, who are mentors and done a lot of their own work. As therapists, we're constantly doing the work. And um, when it comes to really integrating what race means, not just on the shoulders of people of color, but what does it mean to be as a white as a white person? What does that mean in terms of white identity mm -hmm. um, in the construct of something so much bigger? And so when we're able to have those dialogues and like we're doing, and we yeah. have them, it's healing. And that way it gives therapists practice to be able to do that with mm -hmm. their clients. Yes, yes. Well, I want to thank you for how brave you are, Melanie. I know you're hearing this a lot, I'm sure, but you're, I mean, we have to be so grateful to, um, you know, those who are adopted, who, who are adults now. It's a choice to talk about all of this. And it, it's not an easy choice. It's, <laughs> and and I'm sure it, it brings a lot of flack and, and uh, just uh, so many issues. and. I just want to appreciate um, the voice you have. I've learned so, so much from you um, and others that you've introduced me to and just really want to support you and support that, um, you know, helping us continue to learn and really pushing us to, to understand this more deeply. So um, I want to thank you for doing that. Thank, thank you, Karen. Thank you for this. And I know there'll be ongoing um, discussions, but yes. now more than ever, our kids need this and we yes. as a community. Yes. <laughs> too. Mm -hmm. All it right. An honor. Okay. Goodbye for now. Thank you. Bye, Karen. Bye-bye. Thank you for joining us for this edition of Attachment Theory in Action. Please follow our site, traumaattachmentcenter.com, or subscribe on iTunes, Google Play, or Podbean for future podcasts. If you enjoyed our broadcast, please leave a review and share with your professional network. For additional resources, training opportunities, and blogs, log on to TraumaAttachmentCenter.com. We hope you'll join us again as we continue to explore the world of adoption, developmental trauma, and attachment theory.